Evidence and Answers. Islam is the second largest religion in the world, with an estimated 1.4 billion followers. Islam is built on the life and teachings of its founder, Muhammad, believed to be Allah's prophet. But what if Muhammad never really existed? What if the stories about his calling, conquests, and teachings never really ever took place? This would be devastating to the religion of Islam. Join Pat today as he interviews top Islamic scholar Robert Spencer as he presents evidence that indicates Muhammad may not be a historical person. You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today we're going to listen to a very interesting interview with top Islamic scholar Robert Spencer titled, Did Muhammad Exist? The information presented may surprise you. Let's join Pat now with his guest, Robert Spencer. Well, welcome to Evidence and Answers, and with me today is a special guest, Robert Spencer, one of the top scholars in Islam here in the United States. He's written several outstanding best-selling books on Islam, one of the top scholars out there. And he has a graduate degree from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's written some outstanding books on Islam. Anything by this man you'll probably want to get. One of my favorites is The Infidel's Guide to the Quran and The Politically Incorrect Guide to Islam. Just some outstanding books here. And he's come out with a new one. It's a controversial one, but his scholarship and the facts he has behind his thesis here is very outstanding. It's a book worth reading. It's titled, Did Muhammad Exist? And he's challenging the historical veracity of Muhammad, the Prophet Muhammad. Did he actually exist? So, Robert Spencer, welcome to the show. Hey, happy to be here. Thank you for having me on. Robert, explain to us the importance of Muhammad in the religion of Islam. Muhammad is absolutely central to Islam. Muhammad is not a divine figure, as Jesus is in Christianity, but he is considered to be the excellent example of conduct. The Quran calls him Uswa Hasana, which is the supreme model for behavior, the good example, such that this is taken in Islamic tradition to mean pretty much that anything Muhammad did is not only a good thing to have done, but something that Muslims should imitate. Yes, even the way they put on their turban and the way they wake up in the morning and the clothes they wear, all of that they want to model after the Prophet, don't they? Yes, you're quite right. The Hadith are the traditions of what Muhammad said and did, and there's just volume after volume of them. In my office, I have 30 volumes of Hadith, and I don't have nearly all of it. And I can tell you that there is information in there about pretty much everything Muhammad did or is supposed to have done, down to minute details. And pious Muslims study that material and try to model their lives after his example. So if your thesis in this book is correct, if Muhammad did not actually exist, what effect would that have on the world and religion of Islam? Well, if it became something that were widely known and understood in Islam, then it would absolutely transform the Islamic world. And we might see the development of a non-literalist understanding of the Quran and Islam, something akin to Reformed Judaism or Unitarian or Episcopalian Christianity that rejects the literal understanding of the Bible. In Islam, that would be a very positive development because it would involve, one would hope, a rejection of the violent passages of the Quran that enjoin warfare against unbelievers. Now, with nearly 1,400 years of history behind this religion, what causes you to think that Muhammad may not have existed? 
Well, I wrote a biography of Muhammad a few years back, Truth About Muhammad, and what I tried to do in that book was go to the earliest Muslim sources about Muhammad's life and to find what they said about what Muhammad said and did. And I found, as I was looking at those sources closely, that they really have very little historical value, that they're all really very late, you know, they're the earliest sources we have on Muhammad, and yet, for example, the first biography of Muhammad was written over 125 years after his death. And there's actually very little material, none at all, from the first 60 years after he is supposed to have died, when the Arab were conquering huge expanses of territory in the Middle East, North Africa, and Persia, they never say anything about Muhammad. And I wanted to revisit this question and to investigate it in depth, and that's the substance of the book, Did Muhammad Exist? Now, you cite three sources, or primary sources, the Quran, the Hadiths, and the earliest biography by Ibn Ishaq. Well, first tell us why you question the historical nature of the Quran regarding Muhammad. Okay. Well, for the first place, Muhammad hardly appears in the Quran at all. The word Muhammad, or the name Muhammad, only appears four times in the whole Quran. Now, to put that in context, consider this. Moses is mentioned in the Quran 136 times. And Abraham, I believe it's 78 times. And Jesus is even mentioned in the Quran many more times than Muhammad is. And so Muhammad hardly appears in the Quran. There's a lot of addressing of a prophet, a messenger, but he's most of the time not named. And people assume that those things have to do with Muhammad, but there's actually very little biographical information about Muhammad in the Quran at all. And so if you take the Quran as really having been put together during the lifetime of Muhammad, which, of course, Muslims believe, that would be between 610 when he got his first revelation and 632 when he died, then that's a very strange omission. And you have to look to the Hadith for information about Muhammad, but here again, the Hadith weren't collected until the ninth century, a couple hundred years after Muhammad died. And so you have this huge gap where there's just no information about him at all. Now, let's go back to the Quran. You state in your book that the Quran is written several decades after the life of Muhammad, right? Well, actually, the Quran, according to the standard Muslim story, the Quran was all finished with the death of Muhammad, because he was the only one who was receiving these revelations from Allah, supposedly. And according to Islamic tradition, then the Caliph Uthman, who was the third successor of Muhammad as the leader of the Muslims, he gathered together all the Muslims who had memorized parts of the Quran, Part of it was written down, parts of it were memorized, different people had different parts of it. And he got them all together, and he got it all written down, and burnt all the variants, and distributed the unified single Quran to all the Muslim provinces. And this is supposed to have happened 20 years after Muhammad's death, in the 650s. Now, the problem with that story is that we have all kinds of records of the Arabs conquering territories, and of the people they were conquering, writing about what happened at the time, the records that still survived. And we have coins that the Arab conquerors minted for their new domains. And we have inscriptions that they put on public buildings that they built. And in none of this material do they ever quote or even mention the existence of the Quran. And nobody who they conquered ever says, hey, they came, these people came out of Arabia and they conquered and they laid waste and they said that they had a new holy book and a new religion. They give no hint of that, and they never even call them Muslims. We don't start hearing about the Quran until the early 700s. 
50 years after it is supposed to have been distributed to all the Muslim provinces and been in the possession of all the Muslim leaders. Hey, you bring up some good points, you know, and having read the Quran, I notice it quotes some of the heretical supposed gospels, like the gospel of pseudo-Matthew, but that's a gospel that's like an 8th century text. Yes, exactly. There's a lot of strange things in the Quran. It doesn't so much quote, repeat teachings that are in heretical Christian material, as well as Jewish material that is also from Jewish tradition that we don't start hearing about until long after Muhammad is supposed to have lived. And so it does appear that the Quran was the product of historical development, that it was not at all finished by the time Muhammad is supposed to have died and was put together much later. Uh, for example, when we first start hearing about the Quran in the early 700s, we hear about it first from non-Muslim writers who start saying only then, almost 100 years after Muhammad died, or is supposed to have died, that the Muslims claim that they have this new holy book that's a new revelation from God. And one of the first people who mentioned the Quran, he actually says they have the Quran and they have Surah al-Baqarah. Surah al-Baqarah is actually the second chapter of the Quran, it's the chapter of the cow, that's what Surah al-Baqarah means. And it's a very strange thing, you know, if you're reading a book, you don't say, well, I have this book and I have chapter two, <laughs> as if it were a separate thing. Chapter two is part of the book. And so it seems clear that since he singles out Surah al-Baqarah as if it's separate from the Quran, that probably the Quran existed as in a very different form from how it exists today. And the second chapter of the Quran, which is very lengthy, was a separate book at that time, and they were all put together later. Now, just out of curiosity, when you share this information with Muslims, how do they respond? Or do they have some kind of well, defense they come up with? <laughs> no, they don't have any defense. Funny thing that happened recently, there is a very knowledgeable and learned Christian apologist, uh, David Wood, and he and I debated two Islamic Jihad leaders, Benjamin Chowdhury and Omar Bakri, uh, a few weeks back on the Aramaic Broadcast Network, ABN, which is at abnsat.com. People can still see the video there. And they said, of course Muhammad existed. It's written in the Quran. And they couldn't get past their own assumptions. They couldn't lay them aside even long enough to defend them and to show why they held them. They just took them for granted and expected us to take for granted that the Quran was a divine book. Oh, so a circular kind of argument, huh? Oh, yeah. Well, the second source is the Hadith. Now, why do you question its his historical accuracy regarding Muhammad's life? Several reasons. One is that, as I've mentioned, the Hadith don't even arise. We don't start hearing about them until the ninth century, and uh, a little bit in the eighth century, but mostly in the ninth. Now, consider that, that you're, you have for 60 years after Muhammad died, or supposed to have died, from the 630s to the 690s, you have the Arabs conquering these huge territories, and supposedly, supposedly they did it energized by the example of Muhammad, the teachings of Muhammad, and the teachings of his Quran. And yet they never mention, and their con the conquered people never mention, that there was a Muhammad or a Quran or Islam, and they never call them Muslims, the conquered people. So you have this huge gap. Then in the 700s, you start hearing about Muhammad, and when you start hearing about Muhammad, you hear contradictory things. For example, if you open the Hadith, you will see Muhammad saying something that Islamic spokesmen in the United States like to quote a lot, 
that he says it's wrong to kill innocent civilians. He doesn't actually say innocent civilians. He says women and children. That you don't kill women and children in battle. And Muslims like to quote this nowadays to say, see, 9-11 was illegitimate. Muhammad said, don't kill the uh, women and children. Uh, don't kill innocent non-combatants. And that sounds great. But then if you just keep reading, on the same page, you have Muhammad giving permission to kill innocent civilians and non-combatants. And it's a flat contradiction. And so how are we to explain this? Well, we can go right to how the Muslims explain it. Muslim scholars will tell you that huge numbers, and I'm talking hundreds of thousands of Hadiths, were actually forged by the political leaders of various factions within the Muslim community in the 8th and 9th centuries. And they forged them because Muhammad was the excellent example of conduct. They said, uh, Muhammad did this, and so therefore we should do it, to support their own positions and what they wanted to do. And so you had this chaotic situation in which these huge numbers of, of stories of Muhammad have no value at all historically, and were just forged in order to score political points. And then the other party would forge a contradictory hadith to support their position. And so the Muslim scholars in the ninth century, recognizing this and recognizing these huge number of forgeries, they figured we have to figure out a way to determine what Muhammad really said and did. And the Hadith collectors in the ninth century, they determined that they would do that by examining the chain of transmitters. The chain of transmitters is like a big game of telephone. Like Pat told Robert and Robert told so-and-so who told so-and-so who told so-and-so that Muhammad said this. And the ultimate idea is that it goes back to somebody who actually was there when Muhammad said this. And the chains of transmitters, every Hadith has one, and they are supposedly the way that you can tell that if every link in the chain is a reliable person and the chain is unbroken, then Muslim scholars will tell you the Hadith is authentic. Now, there's a big problem with this, right obviously, in the first place, that if you can forge the stories about what Muhammad said and did, and Muslims admit that happened, then why can't you forge a chain of transmitters? What would be so hard about that? And so the whole idea that the chains of transmitters establish the authenticity of the Hadith is absurd. And the fact that, see, you take, for example, the Imam Bukhari. Bukhari was a 9th century Muslim who went around the Islamic world collecting Hadith, stories of what Muhammad said and did. And he collected, according to Muslim tradition, 300,000 of these stories and rejected 297,000 of them as forgeries. 297,000. And he published the other 3,000 in this huge collection that's nine volumes. I have it in my office. You can get it today. And the nine-volume collection is considered to be the most authentic, most clearly authenticated words of Muhammad. Now, the problem is, is that that's all, the authenticity of the 3,000 is only based on these chains of transmitters. And so, really, they don't have any more historical value than the others. We're supposed to believe, in other words, that the Muslims knew all about, in tremendous detail, what Muhammad said and did. But they said nothing about it, never referred to it, never said they had it, never gave any hint that any of this material existed for over 150 years. And then they suddenly start proliferating all these huge amount of stories about Muhammad. It's much more likely that these things were all forged for various political reasons by various parties within the Islamic world, and that certain of them were chosen 
as being the ones that would become normative for Islamic law and were deemed authentic, but that those don't really have any more historical value than the others. Wow, that's amazing. Well, the third authoritative source is the biography by Ibn Ishaq, and tell us why you also question its historical accuracy regarding Muhammad. Here again, Ibn Ishaq is late. He writes in the 750s, or thereabouts, and that's over 125 years after Muhammad is supposed to have died. And so that's one big problem. There's no extant source earlier than that. And people could say, well, sure, but it's oral tradition, and in those days people were, had, had very long memories, and they were careful, and so the oral tradition is reliable. And that may be, but there's a problem again with this, and that is that the Quran depicts the prophet that it discusses as being someone who didn't work any miracles. And the only miracle he has is the Quran itself. But Ibn Ishaq is full of miracles. Muhammad's working miracles left and right. And this is never explained as to how it is that in the Quran itself, the prophet there is always saying he can't work miracles, and yet Muhammad is able to work miracles real easily. <laughs> so, in Ibn Ishaq. And so it seems immediately clear that Ibn Ishaq is not a sober and carefully collected history, but is more on the level of pious legends. You know, that's in contrast to, for example, the Gospels, which are first-generation accounts. We've discovered manuscripts that are very early, early second century. In fact, Dan Wallace says he's discovered a fragment of the Gospel of Mark in the first century. We've got quotes from the Church Fathers like Clement of Rome in 90 AD, numerous historical and archaeological discoveries that confirm the historical reliability of the Gospels. That's Islam doesn't have the same kind of historical evidence, you're saying, when it comes to the life of Muhammad. Yeah, it's a very useful comparison, as a matter of fact, because, you know, a lot of people have questioned the historical reliability of the Gospels. And, you know, you have the whole quest for the historic Jesus and all these things that have gone on for several hundred years now. And yet most scholars agree that within the first 60 years after the life of Jesus, you have the writings of St. Paul, some of them would put the Gospels in that period, some would put it put them uh, right at the end of that period, but hardly any would put them any later than that. You have non-Christians referring to Christ and to Christianity. You have both Roman writers and Jewish writers doing so. And yet, when you turn to Islam, and you take the same period, the first 60 years, not only do you not have any writings that are Islamic from the Muslims, but the non-Muslims who came into contact with the people who were supposed to be the Muslims never call them Muslims and never have any idea, as I said before, that they had any prophet, religion, or holy book. Well, so of the story of Muhammad, his call from the angel Gabriel, his flight to Medina, the battles of Bader, the battles of Uhud, the siege of Medina, the conquest of Mecca, I mean, what parts of these can we consider actually historical? None of it. Wow. It was all fashioned. See, this is what happened, what, what seems to be most likely what happened, that we first start hearing about Muhammad and Islam and the Quran after the Arabs had amassed a great empire. Now, in those days, empires were held together by religion. That's what made them what they were. For example, the Byzantine Empire was a multinational empire that was Christian, and the Persian Empire was Zoroastrian, and those were the two great empires of the day. 
both of them did not have some sort of overarching political philosophy, that is, something like the U.S. Constitution. They were just autocratic regimes, and they were not a single ethnic group, but they were multinational. And so what held them together was that they had a common religion. And so the Arabs, when they amassed their empire, they did not have a common religion to start with. And it seems as if Islam was constructed in order to supply that gap to try to unify and strengthen the new Arab empire. And so the battles that you refer to, it seems that the people who put together Islam wanted to make Islam into a martial religion that was supremacist, that was aggressive toward its rivals, particularly Judaism and Christianity. And by that means, to make it into a very useful vehicle for strengthening the Arab Empire. Wow, that is amazing. You know, a lot of people listening out there be quite shocked with the things you're saying. So how did Islam actually get created then? These group of Arab conquerors came together and decided, hey, we're going to make this guy Muhammad and, and tell stories about him? Or how did it come about? Yeah. Well, what seems to have happened was it started around in the 690s, the 680s, and particularly the 690s, particularly with the Caliph Abdul Malik. Abdul Malik was the caliph, that is, the successor of Muhammad. In those days, it's interesting to note also that the caliph was not identified as the successor of Muhammad, but the title was understood as being a kind of a vice-regent of God himself on earth. And in any case, the caliph Abdul Malik started to put Muhammad as the prophet of Allah on the coins that he minted and on the official material that he published. And this was the first Muslim ruler to do this. And there are a lot of funny things about Abdul Malik. I, I said earlier, for example, that Uthman, the caliph in the 650s, is supposed to have collected the Quran together and published it and distributed it to all the provinces. And yet Abdul Malik is also said to have done that. Now, it just doesn't make any sense for there to be Muslim traditions that say that Abdul Malik collected the Quran together and burned the variants and distributed it to the various provinces if it had already been done almost 50 years before by Uthman. There's no explanation for that at all. However, if you see, if you take it that Abdul Malik actually did it and then he wanted to give an air of authenticity to what he had done, a patina of authority to it, then he attributed it to Uthman and said, well, this is 50 years old, this was done before, and you're just, uh, maybe you didn't hear about it before, but it's always been around. Then that would explain why you have this double doubling of the story about who collected the Quran and distributed it. Also, during the reign of Abdul Malik, which was from 685 to 705, we start hearing for the first time about Muslims reading the Quran in the mosques, and there's even a Muslim tradition where some guy is saying, we didn't read the Quran in the mosques before the time of Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, who was Abdul Malik's lieutenant, and who is also uh, attributed with much of the material about the Quran. Some of the early Christian writers, actually, in those days, who were in contact with the Muslims, they actually refer to the Quran as the work of Hajjaj ibn Yusuf. And so it's, uh, it seems as if they were aware that this was not something old that they were dealing with, but something new. Wow. You know, if Muhammad was not a historical person, then how did this religion gain such a large following? 
Well, it's gained a large following, actually, to this day, not so much by the power of persuasion, although, of course, some people can be persuaded of anything, and there are people who convert to it on the basis of persuasion, but mainly by making it so difficult to be non-Muslim. I mean, you have a martial religion that conquers territories and imposes its political law upon them, and so that's the first step. Now, Islam does not force people to convert to Islam, but it does mandate dimitude for those who do not. Dimitude is the secondary, chastened, subservient, subjugated status of the non-Muslims under the rule of the Muslims. And it's specified in the Quran and Islamic law that the non-Muslims must pay a special tax and uh, with willing submission and feel themselves subdued, the Quran says. And that is, in other words, the basis for a system of discrimination and harassment that makes life very difficult for non-Muslims in Islamic State. And so you take, for example, Egypt. Egypt was conquered by the Arabs in the 640s, and at the time that it was conquered, it was 99% Christian. Now, what happened to all the Christians in Egypt? Now Egypt is about 10% Christian. Where did they all go? Did they leave Egypt? No, they're still there. They're the Muslims. Did they convert to Islam over the centuries because they realized that it was true and that it was a beautiful religion and so on? No, they converted to Islam because if they converted to Islam, then they were no longer subject to having to pay this special tax that the Muslims were exempt from paying, and they were no longer subject to all these humiliating and discriminatory regulations that gave them second-class status in Egypt. And so this is how so many people in Egypt converted to Islam, and it's been the same story all over the world, that the Dimma makes life so difficult for the non-Muslims that they convert to Islam as their only pathway to a better life. Well, folks, you've been listening to Robert Spencer, and as you can see, his research is quite extensive here. And his new book, I recommend you get it, Did Muhammad Exist, is another outstanding book on Islam by this man. Well, Robert Spencer, tell us about your website and where people can get more information about the things that you teach regarding Islam. Sure. It's jihadwatch.org. That's J-I-H-A-D watch.org, and it is updated many times daily with news and commentary about jihad activity, both violent and stealthy, in the United States and around the world. Yes, it's an outstanding website. I recommend you go there regularly to keep updates on what's going on in the Middle East and in the world of Islam. It poses a major threat to world civilization and especially the freedom we have in America today. Well, Robert Spencer, thank you for being with us. We're going to have you back next week to talk more about your other book, Stealth Jihad. So we look forward to having you back next week. Thanks very much. I look forward to it as well. That was a fascinating interview with Islamic scholar Robert Spencer. If you miss any part of this interview, log on at evidenceandanswers.org and you can listen to this interview in its entirety along with Pat's feature articles on Islam. Pat's ministry with Probe International relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. In order to bring you quality scholars like Robert Spencer and others, Pat needs your support. If you've been blessed by the message today, please let Pat know and consider partnering with Pat in prayer or with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. This will help keep Pat on the air and allow him to proclaim God's message throughout the islands. So please consider partnering with Pat today by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. Join us next week as Pat continues his interview with Robert Spencer on the topic of stealth jihad. We look forward to being with you next week right here on Evidence and Answers. 